On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about scooters in the city of Hamilton, electric scooters that may soon be on the streets, hundreds of them. Good idea? We'll discuss. We're talking about what happened with the Washington Capitals and New York Rangers. There was a potentially really dangerous incident that has led to outrage against the NHL. In fact, the New York Rangers are demanding the head of discipline for the NHL be fired for this. What happened? We'll talk about it. And the movie industry, it's reopening now, at least in some places, but are people going to come back to theaters? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Soon, potentially, you could be seeing electric scooters buzzing around Hamilton. Uh, Council spent quite a while yesterday discussing a proposal to bring the personal devices to the city. And if you don't know what they are, they're exactly what you think they are. They are... They look like scooters, they ride like scooters, but they got a little battery and a little motor in them, so you can just hop on board and away you go. And a lot of people love this idea. It has worked in other cities around the world. I've seen it work in other cities around the world. They are very popular. They're very inexpensive to use. They're convenient. They don't use gas. They can just be taken from point A to point B and left there. There's a lot to like about them. Not everybody is on board, however, especially leading the concern are those representing the blind or the disabled, the blind people, because they say, look, if you can't see one of these things coming up, they're pretty much silent. If you can't see one of these things coming up, you could get in the way, you could be injured, no fault of your own. A disabled people, in some cases, you may not be able to get out of the way if someone is riding it inappropriately. So will we be seeing these on the streets of Hamilton? Let's bring in Councillor John Paul Danko from Ward 8. So explain briefly, uh, now I know this was a long discussion yesterday, and I know that no decision has been made, but if this was to go ahead, are we talking about the entire city of Hamilton? Theoretically, would there be scooters potentially everywhere throughout the city? Well, as of right now, personal e-scooters are already permitted in the city of Hamilton. So that's something that we as a council moved forward with back in December. So they've been permitted uh, as an allowable vehicle on city streets for about five months now. Um, What we've been talking about now is, and this week, is moving into a commercial e-scooter rideshare program. So I think that's what you're seeing um, and, and listeners will recognize in other cities where you have a commercial operator that has e-scooters out on the city streets that are available for rent. So the proposal for the city of Hamilton is um, to look at up to three vendors that will supply about 250 to 500 e-scooters each, so a total of around 1,500, and they'll be primarily in the areas of the city that are uh, already served by the, uh, the Sobe bicycle system um, in the, uh, the bike share system. So primarily downtown along the main and King corridor, but uh, hopefully also expanding into some of the other nodes where uh, we know there will be ridership demand, uh, such as Mohawk College up on the mountain. The the, the Sobe bike thing came up obviously about a year ago and the city is no longer running that. Do the Sobe bike people want the scooters? Because you would presumably have some of the same people now overlapping and some of the business could be taken away from the Sobe bikes. There is concern that it is a competition with the Sobe bike share Um, in terms of that last mile uh, uh, transportation connection uh, option. uh, So there, there is a little bit of concern, but at the same time, uh, one of the things with the, uh, the bike share, sorry, with the e-scooter program is that the revenue that the city would see from uh, allowing e-scooters, and these would be 
private commercial operators, but in order to operate, they have to get approval from the city of Hamilton. So we would have some revenue coming back uh, from that, and that could be reinvested into the, the Sobe bike share program. So I, I think it can be a win-win for everybody. Uh, I think a, a lot of the times when you're talking about options for people to get them out of their personal vehicle and into a, a more of an active transportation mode, improving uh, the infrastructure for active transportation and bike lanes and just having more people out of their cars and moving around the city in different ways, I, I think is beneficial for all modes of transportation. You mentioned that it's already legal to have your own electric scooter right now. So now the rules and, and assuming the rules stay the same as far as if it becomes corporate as opposed to just personal, where can you ride a motorized scooter. I mean, are, uh, the roads, obviously, but is our bike lanes legal? Are sidewalks legal? Where are they permitted? The rules are very similar to what they are for bicycles. So you're permitted to ride on the road and or in a bike lane. You're not permitted to ride on the sidewalk. So it's exactly the same as a bicycle. And the rules for wearing a helmet are are the same as well. So currently in Ontario, if you're 18 and older, it's your choice whether to wear a bike helmet or not. If you're 18 and under, your a bike helmet is mandatory. So it would be the same uh, with, with e-scooters, whether it's a personal e-scooter or with uh, commercially available, the rules are, are pretty much the same. The commercial e-scooters would only be available to those 16 years old and up. And of course, if you're 16, you can drive a car, so you should be able to ride a, mm. an e-scooter. Um, but for, if you have a, a private e-scooter, there, there's no age limit on it. But uh, again, the rules are very similar to what they are for a, for a bicycle. Are you allowed, by the way, and I don't know the answer at all to this, are you permitted to ride a motorized bicycle in the bike lane? Or is that can then considered a motorized vehicle that has to be out of the bike lane? I, there's some gray area there because I think it depends on the size of the motor. Um, because there, there are pedal assist, uh, there's, I mean, we're, we're kind of at the, the, the changeover now to all kinds of different electrically yes. powered yes. vehicles for, you know, right from electric assist bicycles to vehicles that look almost identical to motorcycles, uh, down to, you know, unicycles and who knows what other kind of crazy things people come up with can be powered by, uh, an electric motor to get you around. Um, I want to, so, I want to see the electric or I want to see the electric or the motor powered unicycle that I'm waiting to see. I haven't seen one of those yet. Um, let me take yeah, a quick break I here. Have. We're going to have you, have, they are out <laughs> yeah. there. Oh, yeah, well, so I, I got to keep my eyes open. I will keep my eyes open for sure. I want a Harley unicycle. And as soon as they come up with a Harley <laughs> unicycle, I may learn to ride one. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Counselor, I'm glad you answered just before the break. I'm glad you answered the way you did. Um, uh, simply the part about, you know, we've now got bicycles that have different levels of motorization and scooters that have different levels of motorization. And we have um, I even um, people riding their, uh, you know, the, the um, you know what I'm talking about in the, if they have a disability or something on the electric powered wheelchairs or whatever else, we've got all these different things. And the more things you put onto sidewalks or bike lanes or roads, the more complicated it gets for the city. Is it possible the more and more things you add, even, and I, for the record, I'm in favor of this scooter thing. I think it's a good idea, but the more you put out there, does it make it more and more difficult for our city officials to figure out what's going on and whether it's working and whether things are being done right? It does add complexity to the, uh, the public space. And, uh, you know, we, we definitely don't want people riding at high speed on the sidewalks and, and getting in conflicts with pedestrians 
or at the same time we want to make sure that you know i i'm a driver when i'm on the road i need to make sure that whoever else is on the road with me is predictable and that you know the, they're not just going to ride into my car or in front of my car or i'm not going to see them coming or whatever so it, it does add some additional challenges to us uh you know as a city but it, it also i think highlights the importance of making sure that we have um, continuous infrastructure in place to allow for people to have different choices in in their mobility options and uh, for me anyway that's making sure that our, our when we do have bike lanes that they're separated from traffic so that when you're driving there's not uh, combined traffic on the road with you at the same time and I think that's really what what we're looking for to make sure that everybody has a, a safe way to get from A to B and I think some of the concerns that we heard at council from um, the disability advocates in terms of people with uh, with hearing impairments or vision impairments, it, a lot of it had to do with having to share space on sidewalks with what can be a, a quite fast-moving vehicle with a scooter or any other kind of uh, e-device. Um, so I, I think there are, you know, some some legitimate concerns there. One of the things with a commercial program is that we have a, much more control over how that's regulated. So if we have operators that are, the key is to have good quality operators that genuinely care about the city in which they operate and uh, will take responsible, responsibility for how their vehicles are used. And I think a lot of the, the hesitancy might have been from kind of the early days of the e-scooter program where it was uh, a lot of these companies saw themselves as disruptors and they just came into the municipality and dumped e-scooters everywhere overnight and mm. it was uh, kind of chaos and and that's not what we uh, we want to see here in Hamilton. Let me ask you something else and you just this is something else you just brought up a moment ago and that is you know we 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 were going to have these if they come we're going to have them on the roads and look we know that car drivers can cause problems and cause accidents we also know that it's not always the car's fault, that we could have scooters veer in front of them or bump it. Is there ever been a thought, is there ever a thought in the city that as you get more and more modes of transportation, that cyclists, that e-scooter drivers, whatever, should be licensed and and not licensed even necessarily to take money from them, but in the event of an accident or in the event of a situation so that there's a way to know who they are? Yeah, I think there's different levels to licensing. I mean, there's the full test and, you know, you know, in-car licensing that we have for, for vehicles. Um, but it, it can be something as simple as training. So, again, that's kind of one of the issues that came up, that if you are going to be an e-scooter user and you're signing on to a rideshare program, that even if if it's not, you know, a full license, that at least you have to go through training to make sure that you're aware of the rules of the road and where you should be and where you shouldn't be. Um, and that can be built into, you know, into the in-app uh, experience so that when you sign on, there is some training provided. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's, it's definitely something that we don't want to just hand somebody, you know, a vehicle and say, you know, essentially go play in traffic. We want to make sure that people are responsible themselves and know the rules of the road and, and are well, trained I, to use it. <laughs> yeah. And I know that people, especially cyclists blanch at the idea, but then I know that when I go up North in the summertime and rent a boat for the week, I have to fill out forms and go over this thing to show that at least I have a general knowledge of boating rules. And if the OPP come along in their boat and stop me, I have a document that shows who I am. If I'm breaking said rules, 
And, you know, I know cyclists will lose their minds if we were to say suddenly you have to have a license to be on the road of some kind. But, you know, as I say, I just wonder with more and more quote, quote, vehicles out there, if that becomes a thing. I think it is kind of a growing concern of of multiple vehicles of different performance levels sharing the same space. Um, so when we're talking about licensing, I think it is important to consider the, the amount of risk, not just to the person using the vehicle or operating the vehicle, but also to the other people on the roadway. And certainly the largest amount of risk is, is if you're in a motor vehicle or if you're in a collision with a motor vehicle. So, of course. um, you know, and it's kind of funny, um, when we had the discussion with e-scooters, a lot of the risks that we're, we're talking about, I don't think we do a good job of really appreciating um, really how dangerous it is to either be in a car as a passenger or a driver. Um, there is by far the most dangerous thing that we, any of us do on a, on a daily basis. But uh, in terms of, in terms of licensing, I think it needs to be proportional to the risk of the, the mode of mm-hmm. transportation. It's certainly a discussion for another day. Uh, we will pick this up again because I know the scooter issue is going to come back in front of council again and guaranteed it's going to come back in front of council again. Uh, Councillor John Paul Danko, appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last night in a game, got very scrappy. There was a scramble around the net and Tom Wilson, who's a guy who's been a He's been suspended a number of times. Big, strong winger for the Washington Capitals. Maybe the toughest guy or at least the strongest guy in the NHL. uh, Punched a Rangers player in the head while he was down. Then another player jumped on his back to stop him. And that guy, Wilson, grabbed, it seemed, grabbed by the hair. His helmet had popped off. Grabbed him by the hair and then flipped him backwards. Almost, I mean, it was it was so close to this guy Panarin, who's a star in the league, to having his head, his bare head smack off the ice. And it could have been horrendous now it didn't he seemed to land on his shoulder pad thank goodness but a lot of people saying okay big suspension coming the nhl today gave me five thousand dollar fine that's it for a guy making millions of dollars it's like you know it's like buying a pizza mark hebsher was the longtime host of global sports line then he was a host here in hamilton of square off and live at 5 30 and a bunch of other things he's now uh he's now a commentator he has his own podcast he joins us now mark how are you tonight Great to talk to you again. It's always about always about some nonsense that's going on, isn't it? Well, it is. And let me play you something before we get started here, because John Scott, who everybody remembers, was a six foot eight. He was the guy who won the All Star Game MVP. It was a bit of a joke, but he was an enforcer in the league. Here's what he had to say on Twitter today, Mark, about the NHL's decision on this. I, I think he crossed the line this time, and then I just get the news that he could he, he gets fined five thousand dollars. Like what? What on earth is happening with the NHL right now? George Peros completely dropped not only the ball, he dropped everything. Dropped his drawers, dropped everything. It it was a joke of a fine. And listen, I love this type of hockey. I think we all do. But what Tom did was just, you can't, there's no excuse for that. It's just, it's insane to me that he only got a $5,000 fine. He's a repeat offender. He's done this time in and time out. So, Mark, here's my question. If, if we cut right to the chase, and we know in senior hockey a guy died on the ice when he fell during a fight and hit his head on the ice, what happens in this case if Wilson flips Panarin to the ice and rather than catching his shoulder pad, he smacks his head on the ice and doesn't get up? What kind of fine, what kind of penalty does Tom Wilson get? Oh, he gets suspended then, Scott. But, of course, that didn't happen. 
No, I understand, but that makes it good fortune. That makes it good fortune rather than good behavior that determines the NHL's discipline situation, which seems to me a very weird way to do things. Well, this is a weird year, too, and I'm not saying that in another year without COVID that Tom Wilson, you know, uh, would have gotten away with it or would have gotten suspended, but you have to understand another thing, too, in that I think the NHL is being more lenient for a few reasons. One is that these two teams have played each other, I think, eight times already. Uh, and they always play at least two games in a row and sometimes three. In fact, in late March, they had three straight games that were, I think they were all one-goal games, or one of them was a one-goal game in an empty net or something like that. Real close games, three nights, uh, uh, three games and four nights. Now, you, as you know, Scott, you can really get the red ass for somebody. And if you're a Rangers fan and you think that you've been taken advantage of by Tom Wilson, and this is boiling over now. You've played eight games against this team. And now he does what he did the other night, and you feel he should be suspended to the point where you've sent something out now today. You've made a statement saying that George Peros, the director of safety and development, should be fired and that the Rangers won't accept it, the fact that he wasn't suspended. Come on. It's like no autopsy, you know, no, no, no uh, serious injury. And even though it was, the NHL has allowed this to happen for years so you shouldn't be i'm not surprised by it for years well i I tell you why it bothers me so much in this case and i've got no i've got no dog in the fight i'm neither a fan of the rangers or the capitals or hate the rangers or the Capitals. so it makes no difference to me but we have consistently over the years seen the nhl hand out discipline again based on the outcome and you you look back very famous one marty mcsorley local guy from cayuga uh, when he hit Donald Brashear in the head with his stick, Donald Brashear got knocked out by that, and Marty McSorley got an indefinite suspension, which happened to come at the end of his career. So he just sort of retired and went off into the sunset. But if Donald Brashear doesn't get knocked out, Marty McSorley probably gets a two-minute penalty, and that's the end of it. And again, it comes to my point of what are you suspending for, the outcome or the act? Yeah. You know, I, I I've seen a lot worse than what Tom Wilson did. I'm going to say that. I've seen a lot worse. Are the Rangers whining? Well, you know, I'm sure if you asked them and you said, you know, would you like a Tom Wilson-type player? They'd say, sure, but as long as he doesn't go over the edge. And he went over the edge yesterday. And, you know, I don't know, Scott. I mean, I just I think that if you're going to start to do that, then every single play is reviewable. Uh, every time an official makes a call or doesn't make a call, you know, I kind of harken back to the days where the on-ice officials said, all right, you're gone for five, you're gone for two, that's a match penalty, automatic suspension. But now it just seems that every time there's any kind of an incident, and let me tell you, the fact that the Rangers were involved, New York media, especially, you know, whining the New York Post saying you should be banned for life, that adds a lot to it. There's a lot of drama involved there as well. Um, so I'm not surprised. I think he should have gotten a cup, two games for um, whacking Panarin in the back of the head. Yeah, you know, defenseless I, there. That, that, but beyond that, I see. I saw Dan Maloney um, knock Brian Glennie unconscious, pick him, pick his limp body up off the ice, and slam it into the ice, and then pick it up again and slam it into the ice. Now he was charged by the Ontario uh, government. He was charged by uh, uh, Roy McMurtry, the Attorney General. For, it was um, assault um, with a, not with a deadly weapon, uh, assault to like to commit you know harm or like a really serious 
charge. And he ended up going to court for it. And that's that's back in the 70s. So th- this will always be there. There will always be an incident that people are going to look at it and go, oh, my God, that was horrible. You, you've got to suspend this. You've got to kick this guy out forever. And it just doesn't work that way in hockey. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you go on Twitter, if you go on social media, if you listen to a lot of the commentary today, that seems to be the recurring theme here is how come the NHL can never seem to get discipline right? And a lot of people right now are pointing to the fact that, well, they hired a guy as their head of discipline who was a goon in the NHL. What could possibly go wrong with that? But why can the NHL, why does the NHL always seem to get in the crosshairs when it comes to their discipline rulings? I really can't answer that, Scott, except to say that I think the NHL still feels that the element of the rough and tumble element of the game uh, needs to stay at some point. And when you get a guy like Tom Wilson, who is, he's, he's not a goon because he can score. He's a talented player. And you were to say something like, for example, well, you know, Mark Messier was a, was known as a dirty player in his day, but he was Mark Messier. He was a great, great player. Yep. But, you know, you ask anybody, Mark Messier would, would, would take his stick and, you know, he could take it, you know, he could put it between your teeth and knock your bridge out. He could, uh, and he did. You. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, but of course he was Mark Messier, but I mean, Gordy Howe was the same. Gordy Howe was legendary. So this type of hockey player, this type of character who can be mean and tough and also talented, um, is really what the NHL still dreams is their, their ideal player. Not a Gretzky, not a Lemieux. But 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 Gordy Howe, you know, and maybe Rocket Richard because he was emotional and he was, you know, I guess tough in that particular sense. But I mean, I think they look at Tom Wilson and they say, yeah, you know, the guy's got talent, but it's up to. I think they should do something with the team. I think they have to tell the Washington Capitals, look, we're going to find you. You've got to keep the reins on this guy. Well, he does okay. Play on the edge, but so did Nazem Kadri play on the edge. So did yep. Brian Marchman play on the edge. So does Brad Marchand play on the edge. There's a lot of guys, the Kachuk brothers, play on the edge. We like guys that play on the edge. So the NHL has said, or the New York Rangers, as you mentioned, as you referred to a moment ago, put out a statement just in the last few minutes. Uh, we view, talking about George Peros, the guy who is the head of the discipline area for the NHL, we view this as a dereliction of duty by the head of player safety and believe he is unfit to continue in his current role. The Rangers clearly are ticked about this. What happens, would it be any surprise now if the Rangers who are out of playoff contention go down into the deepest levels of their farm system, try and call some goon or animal up and say, your only job today is to make sure you beat the snot out of Tom Wilson, and if he won't fight you, injure somebody else, do something, get back, send a message. And would it, I mean, I fully expect that something like that will happen. Maybe not with the goon, but something is going to happen. And would this not then be on the NHL? Because they say we're going to protect the players, and then they consistently show the players, no, you do have to police yourself because we're not going to do it for you. Scott, are you suggesting that a member team of the National Hockey League Yes. Would you would usurp the the authority of of a, a top executive? Yep. By, yep. by intentionally making a mockery of his decision. Yep. And putting uh, putting someone in danger in, yep. in, in mortal danger of being injured. Uh, what if Tom Wilson had his eye taken out? What if he suffered a fractured skull? What if he went to the hospital and died? How would you feel? 
I'd feel terrible. And then I would say, but I really believe that all along, if the NHL handled its discipline in a way that showed your misbehavior on the ice will not be tolerated and you don't have to worry about policing the game, we'll do it for you, it wouldn't happen. I would put the blame of that partially on the Rangers, but also partially on the NHL for sending the message that we're not looking out for you. What about on the New York Post? What about in all these media outlets who are calling for Tom Wilson's head? What about them? Here's the thing. If I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not Tom Wilson that gets targeted tomorrow. Because the Rangers, really, if you look at the roster, they don't have someone to go after Tom Wilson. I'm not surprised if Alex Ovechkin doesn't take a two-hand chop across the wrist and try and break his wrist tomorrow and say, you go after our superstar who's now out for the year? We're not worried about you, Tom Wilson. We'll go after your superstar. And again, I'm not endorsing this. I'm saying this is now, I think, something that is probably very likely. Yeah, it is. So maybe it's a, um, it's a turning point for the National Hockey League. You know, maybe there has to be a particular incident where people are just, they've had it, they've fed up. You know, maybe Ranger fans, what if they stormed Madison Square Garden the way the Manchester United fans stormed <laughs> Old Trafford and said, we're not going to take this anymore. Took right? the ice. So is, yep. But this is up against the league. Now, I mean, what if Major League Baseball fans, like what if Blue Jay fans said, we're not, we're not going to stand for this umpire anymore. This particular guy, Angel Hernandez, is notorious. They had a video the other mm -hmm. day, 15 missed calls. In this one game, so why why wouldn't the team that um, uh, you know that lost that night on those bad calls? Why wouldn't they just storm, have their fans storm Major League Baseball headquarters and go, "We're not going to take this anymore. You've got to you got to have to get rid of this guy." Is that the way it should be? Because I'll be honest with you, Scott. If the fans speak out enough, why shouldn't they have a say in what happens in the sports that they love? Why not? It's a fascinating discussion. And look, if we talk about baseball, we're short on time, unfortunately. But, I mean, let's go back to the most famous in our little world here incident with the Rangers, Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays, the Bautista Rugnet Odor thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was that was baseball. The Blue Jays, the Rangers didn't think the Blue Jays were good. And then the Blue Jays, the Rangers didn't think that baseball took care of the Blue I mean, and the players policed themselves. And you end up with a brawl and guys getting drilled by pitches and... You know, it, the whole thing because it happens because the league doesn't step in. And I don't want over-managing. Over I don't want over-disciplining. I, I mean, I don't believe what people are saying, like the New York Post, that Tom Wilson should be banned for life. But at the same time, I think it's probably worth more than a fine that really is so little in his world that it means nothing. Right, but, okay, in the grand scheme of things, Tom Wilson has not... Um, has not ended in anyone's career. I mean, he knocked Van Aaron out. The Rangers were out of the playoffs anyway, but... He, you know, Panarin's not going to play the last three games of the season, uh, whatever. But, you know, I liken it to, I remember when I was a sportscaster, Steve Howe, the pitcher of the Dodgers, was suspended seven times by yes. Major League Baseball for drugs. Now, it was for drugs, but still, I mean, seven times. Like, what was the discussion like after his fourth suspension? Was it, should we just ban him for life? No, no, no. He's got to get to seven before we ban him for life. So, like, <laughs> yeah. what's, the, what's the statute of limitations on Tom Wilson, or for example, if they said, look, if Tom Wilson only has an average of one incident a year or one suspension every two years, and he's played 10 years in the league, is he where they thought he would be? Like he's done that much damage to the league. Has the league gone out and said every player has got a, every team now has to have a Tom Wilson type? Are they, yeah, that's where it's going. Like Tom Wilson for every team. 
That's where it's going. We got to run. Unfortunately, it'll be when Tom Wilson seriously injures someone, the league will say, oh man, you've now gone way too far and now you're suspended. Now we're serious. Well, hopefully it doesn't happen to come to that, but that seems to be the end result of these things always. Mark Hepsher, always love having you on. Thanks for catching up today. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier today, I saw a list come out. Some person had collated a list of the blockbuster movies that are in the queue that are waiting to come out this summer because summer is always movie time. It's always when the big movies come out. Ever since the days of Jaws, when that started, summertime is when the huge flicks hit the screen. And it was a list of what movies are coming out this summer. Of course, last summer, nothing really happened because of COVID. So, uh, a number of these movies have been in the hopper for a while, like the James Bond, the new James Bond movie. But there are a bunch. There are a bunch that are just waiting to come back into the theaters. Now, granted, when talking about this, probably it's a little more apropos from an American perspective since they are way ahead of us in their vaccinations and in their getting everybody back into the real world. We, I don't know if we're going to be back watching movies in theaters yet this summer. Nonetheless, it got the whole thing got me wondering about the industry, about the film industry and how much it's been changed by COVID internally and externally within the industry and us as the viewers. How much has it changed? I want to bring in Robert Thompson. We love when Robert is able to join us. He is a professor of television, radio, and film at the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. He joins us now. Robert, thanks for doing this today. Always love having you on. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Are you uh, are you chomping at the bit, champing at the bit to get back to a theater to watch a movie this summer? Well, you know, I uh, I thought I would be, but I think what's happened is an awful lot of people had uh, have in fact uh, realized that the price of not going into a movie and seeing something in a darkened theater uh, is maybe not such a big price for all it brings, and that's the convenience of not having to get a babysitter and uh, uh, get into the car or however you get there, uh, to be able to watch films uh, whenever you want to. Um, I miss going to theaters, but I have to say every movie that played, uh, that was nominated for an Oscar this year in Best Picture, I saw before the Oscar broadcast, and I saw it on screen, on streaming, not in the theater. See, it's a great question and it's a great point you bring up because I know, I mean, the, the theaters, the, 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 the studios had to do something. They had to have some income coming in. So they directed most of the, many of their new releases onto direct to home streaming while we've been home with COVID. But I wonder if in the long run, that was a mistake. I mean, it brought in the money, I guess now, but what you're talking about, I mean, people have become familiar with that and I think kind of comfortable with that. I think they have two, and the uh, you're right. The question is, I mean, first of all, the uh, studios can live without theaters when uh, when they had to when COVID was at its peak. They simply now have got the technology uh, to distribute in an other ways, streaming uh, being that other way. Uh, Twenty years ago, that would have been impossible. Uh, I suppose they could have uh, released these things on, uh, on tape and put them on cable. Uh, but they can they have other means. The theaters do not have. They need the, the studios. They need the content. 
And I think all of this was going to happen anyway. We were seeing uh, shorter and shorter windows uh, before from theater to streaming uh, and all of that. But I think this pandemic simply accelerated all of those things and accelerated it by a lot. And as you point out, I'm not sure everything is going to be able to be reset once things open up again. What will theaters, in your mind, what will they have to do to be enticing again? Well, I mean, I I think there's probably going to have to be some changes. I'm not sure we can expect they can just throw open the doors and say, okay, back to normal, everyone come back. I think they're going to have to lure people, but how? Uh, But how? uh, The movies have been playing this game for a long time. They survived the advent of television. Uh, and, and that was a big challenge uh, for them. Um, and nobody is, uh, the average number of movies the average person goes to per week has never been as, uh, gotten as high as it was before uh, TV. But they survived. They started throwing things at the screen that you couldn't get at home. Widescreen, Cinemascope, 3D, all of that uh, 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 sort of thing. Um, and, of course, they raised ticket prices. And they managed uh, to compete along with television. We were already seeing some of that already. Well, one of the major theaters in my market, of course, is now a theater where uh, there is a table service. You can order drinks and dinner uh, and all the rest of it. More comfortable uh, seating. Uh, it may be the theaters are going to have to come up with some ways to court the audience back in, um, uh, especially when they've got when the opportunity for streaming still exists. For example, I think uh, the Warner Brothers movies are going to be distributed same day on HBO Max all through 2021, regardless of how much things open up. You touched on the one of the very big ones, and I mean the the sit down eating and all that kind of stuff. That's all peripheral, but movies had become very expensive to go out to a night at the movies you know 20 bucks a ticket maybe for some of them now you can get a whole month of netflix for everyone in your family for all the things you can watch for lower than that are our theaters going to have to adjust their pricing well that, that's a that's kind of a double-edged uh, uh problem because yes one of the ways i suppose they could uh, uh entice people to come back to the movies is have it be a lot less expensive however Movies cost a lot of money to make. Uh, Those ticket prices are built into uh, the the increasing budget of movies and the increasing, uh, uh, not only do you have to make the movie, you have to then uh, market it and all that kind of thing. So uh, it's not going to be so easy for theater owners to finally say, we're going to show you brand new movies, but instead of $19 per ticket, you're going to get it for 8 uh, that would take some uh, really creative uh, arithmetic to make that work. Yeah, yeah. But your popcorn is going to be forty-five dollars. <laughs> well, yeah. Wait, that's about how much it is already. But is that not? I mean, you know, the funny thing is, and it's got nothing to do with movies. But anyone who's had to buy a printer for their computer knows, kind of, it's a, they kind of do it like that. The printer is really cheap, but once they've you've had to buy the printer, now you want to refill the ink. The ink's going to kill you. And I've wondered about that. Do the theaters charge way less for tickets just to get you in the door and then everything else just goes up in price and we start adding extras on? If you want butter on your popcorn, it's extra. If you want this, if you want that, just get the people in the door somehow. Right. Well, and of course, the concessions is the big money for uh, theater owners. There's a lot of markup. Uh, uh, soft drinks, for example, uh, that markup is, is extraordinary 
um, because of course the, the theaters aren't uh, uh, the studios are not supplying those movies for free uh, uh, either. No. Uh, so in in their case, you've got uh, uh, two income stream. You've got your income stream from tickets, and you've got your income stream from uh, concessions. Uh, the, the studios, of course, uh, are depending on, um, you know, are also depending on paying their budgets, especially for these big uh, $70 million uh, movies. And, you know, that was the other thing. One of the things that, that movies thought they were going to uh, compete with is you do these big, giant movies that you can't possibly imagine watching on your laptop or especially on your phone or even on your big screen TV, you know, the big Marvel films and everything. But I think we've learned over the past 14 months or so that while watching uh, uh, a big special effects computer-generated Marvel movie is not optimal on a device, uh, people are willing to do it on a device. To me, watching a movie like Titanic, not on a big screen, is hardly worth the trouble. That's a pretty terrible movie on a 19-inch screen. (laughs) But I think most people uh, have realized that, eh, not as good as in the theater, but it's sure a lot easier. No, I think think you're on to something else here, and and that's a little troubling to me, which is the idea, look, if we're all going to work through the, the chain of command here from the studios to the theater owners to the people, and we realize that the movies people will pay that money to go to the theaters to see are the Marvel movies or whatever, but not necessarily the, what do we want to call it, the talkers. You're now going to have the studio saying, well, there's no money in those other ones, so let's just go all in on all these action movies, which, which to me is, you know, if you don't love those action movies you're going to get squeezed out. Well, and I think that's almost uh, already, I mean, it, it hasn't become a, a complete shift, but that's where Hollywood was headed anyway. I mean, when you look at the, especially at the top box office performers uh, from uh, year to year, uh, they tend to have a lot of big, giant uh, Marvel movies, Jurassic Park movies, all of that uh, kind of thing. The Those old, uh, you know, days of these, you know, kind of uh, philosophical uh, talk-like uh, uh, films. We get one every now and again, but not very often. And the other problem is television does that so much better. When you think of the long, complex development of characters and everything, a good HBO, uh, Netflix um, uh, series can do that a lot better uh, yeah. than the movies can. Uh, the Sopranos managed in many ways to trump The Godfather. Mm. Breaking Bad, you know, I mean, you can't imagine Breaking Bad have been done as a hour and a half movie. Very good point. Yeah. Could you see a rethinking of the model of the theater in that? And what I mean by that is instead of just putting in all new releases, which seems to have been the thing that theater owners start saying, you know, I, we, we know that people still love some of those old movies. Let's start mixing in Titanic or, Shawshank Redemption or this or that. Let's make some of the screens have classics that we know people love and might want to come and see. Well, it's a, it, to somebody like me, that's a lovely idea. Uh, the, the notion of theater owners becoming curators and putting together this programmatic stuff. But then if, I, if someone came and uh, said, what about this? I'd say, great idea. I'll go along with it. But I don't think I would give them any money to invest in it simply because 
look how efficiently that's already being done, again, by the device in your pocket. Uh, Turner Classic Movies does a beautiful job of putting together these theme months and all of this, and you can get that uh, uh, online as well. And that library is unlimited. So your neighborhood theater might, you know, during Christmas decide to mix in a new Christmas release with a re-release of It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. But also at your, you know, right at your fingertips, you can see all of that stuff in virtually the entire library of movies. And that's, that's the whole thing that, that streaming has got such an advantage of, is ease of consumption, unlimited amount of inventory, and you'd never have to physically do anything. A movie theater physically has to get copies of this stuff in one way or another, play it to physical people in physical seats. In many ways, the movie theater is to uh, streaming what, uh, what Blockbuster was to, uh, um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, to, to, to streaming. It, it's, it's something that needs to take place in physical space, and that's been completely, uh, uh, you know, gone we've we've gone past that however blockbuster is gone i don't think movie theaters are going to go away they did survive television in the 1950s i think they're going to survive streaming but i don't think the relationship between studios and theaters are ever going to be quite the same as they were before the pandemic and i don't think the relationship between us and the movie theater is going to be the same. But I think those changes were happening anyway. They just got sped up. Yeah, and I do wonder. I wonder if there are going to be some really creative theater owners out there who will try stuff. If nothing else, if they don't know for sure, but say, you know, there's a new, let's say Breaking Bad was just coming out. I don't know, whatever the newest, greatest thing is in streaming right now on Netflix or whatever. But say, look, we're going to, for the next 12 hours, dedicate one of our screens and you can pay 50 bucks and come. We're going to stream the entire season and you can watch it on the big screen. That may be stupid. That may be crazy. But I wonder how many of them will try stuff just to see how it might work. Well, they might even go further back than that. Uh, It's been a long time, but once upon a time to get people into theaters. Also, by the way, during the challenge of television, they would have contests. They'd give away plates. They'd uh, uh, have Uh, sing-alongs. Going to the theater was much more of a social uh, kind of event. When movies first started for the first 20 years or so, they shared the uh, stage with live performances. Movies started out being put in in vaudeville. And slowly there was less vaudeville and more movie. So there's a lot of that stuff you could uh, uh, you could do. Make make an evening at the theater be something that actually delivers uh, something to you that you can't get elsewhere. Now I'm not sure about showing uh, you know Game of Thrones on the big screen, although that isn't a terrible idea. Uh, but that's already something that we know streaming can do because it's already done it. Uh, I think more the idea of what happens live, something that can only happen in physical space, will always have it on, uh, on streaming because, of course, streaming is something that happens. If it's in physical space, it's that right in front of us. It's a more virtual kind of experience. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, whether it's live sports or live concerts or whatever, uh, I, I wonder. I wonder because I just, as you've said off the top, I, I mean, I just... I have to believe that people's habits have changed over the last 14, 15 months 
and getting some people to break those now is going to be difficult. Maybe not impossible. Maybe maybe two months from now, you and I are going to be talking and we're going to find that theaters have the greatest turnout ever in the history of movies. But I, I, I have my doubts, Robert. Well, I, I hope that change does uh, happen. But I am, uh, you know, think about something like the record store. I, I thought never will, will that go away, even though we've got streaming and all this kind of stuff that we go to cassette to CD. And you can go into many fine city these days and not find a single record store there. It has become like a blacksmith shop. And uh, <laughs> who would have ever guessed something like that could happen? This whole uh, digitalization thing is really, really changing the cultural landscape of how we live from day to day. And I think theaters are going to, be, uh, are going to suffer from that. I want to congratulate you, Robert, as we say goodbye. You were the first person ever to compare a record store to a blacksmith shop on this show, and I think that's a that's a terrific bit of creative explanation. I That's fantastic. Robert Thompson from the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Always appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking some time. It's always so much fun. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.